Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When a character from Roman history appears in Luke, the worst thing any of us could ever do is go back to accounts of Roman history to try to piece together a timeline or historical framework against which we read the Gospel text. On the contrary, when a familiar character appears, you can be sure Luke is using the character's backstory to turn Roman history on its head. Was the character well known to the original addressees? In what region or territory did the character live? What did he do? And how does it connect with the agenda of the author? Does his name have a functional value? Here, it's worth mentioning that Quirinius was the name of an ancient Roman god of war associated with Romulus. When Luke picks a fight with Roman history, he does not hold back. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 2. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 457 of the Bible as Literature podcast. When you're watching a television program and a favorite character makes a cameo from another TV series or a popular movie, you're watching Star Trek and somebody mentions Han Solo. It might be a quick reference, just a cameo. When that happens... Because the character is famous, the author in the current literary universe does not have to say or do anything with that character. All the author has to do is mention, make reference to, or present the character. And it immediately becomes functional in the mind of the audience. The whole reality, the whole backstory, the character development, everything that makes that character real in the other universe, for example, Han Solo in the Star Wars universe, becomes immediately functional just by saying the words Han Solo, presenting a cameo of the character Han Solo. He doesn't even have to speak. The only question is, why was that character presented here? Now, the author is cheating because the work is already done. You're just bringing a marker in and trusting that the addressee will connect the dots within the context of your universe. We have one such character like that in verse 2 of chapter 2 in the Gospel of Luke. 
And that interesting character is Kirinios. Now, everybody hearing this is going to say, well, what are you talking about, Father Mark? This is an historical account, but we already explained to you last week that this isn't about Roman history. This is about Luke's account, which is an anti-history meant to undermine and disempower Roman history. We're not talking about Josephus. We're not talking about trying to establish Roman authority or a human or anthropocentric or kingly history. We are talking about Luke's anti-history of the Roman Empire. So it really begs the question, why is Luke suddenly introducing the tutor to the grandson of Caesar Augustus? In stories, people are not people, they're characters. And characters have a function in the story. If you're going to bring in Han Solo, it's a certain aspect of Han Solo you want to highlight. And people who are familiar with Han Solo immediately can understand where you're connecting. And this is always the case. You know, the more uh, famous a celebrity is or a character is or something like that, you can do those sorts of things. You know, we have this idiom in English where you can outdo somebody by saying, boy, he really out-trumped Trump. What do you mean he out-trumped Trump? What were you talking about? Oh, we were talking about how many marriages someone has had. Ah, okay, I know exactly what you mean by saying he out-trumped Trump. It means he had a lot of marriages because you're taking this one aspect of this very famous person who has a very famous backstory. And you can use that to talk about somebody at work. You can talk about somebody in a novel. doesn't matter if the person is historical or not that you're trying to describe. You can do that with any character, any story. You can always use people in this way. Another thing that people use people for is to point to historical epic. I'm not going to say a historical period. I want to say epic because it doesn't always coincide exactly with years or whatever. But, you know, you can say, you know, I haven't seen hair like that since the Reagan administration. That means somebody there's a woman who has big hair. Now, why did you mention the Reagan administration? Why didn't you say since the 80s? Because my kids would say the 80s because they don't know when Reagan was president, right? So if I'm going to talk to my kids and I mention the Reagan administration, they're going to ask, was he president during the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or which Reagan are we talking about and who is Reagan again? So it doesn't make sense to them. So I can't use that reference with them, right? They have to have a certain kind of historical savviness in order to get the reference of what I might be referring to. As we're reading, we need to figure out how does the character function in the narrative. Last time we talked about Caesar Augustus, you know, we set up this great king of the great city, Caesar Augustus, that was a generation before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And we have this story of the anti-kingly king. So we have the kingliest of kings, Caesar Augustus, and we have the anti-kingly king of kings, Jesus. We bring in Caesar Augustus, not so we can talk about what his track record was against the German armies. That's not why we're talking about him. We're talking about him because of his hold of power and his relationship to the city of cities, Rome. This is why we bring him in. So when we read stories, we can't just assume that a character means something or that the character is just standing in for the guy. Because what does it mean for the guy? When you say to your kids, Father, are you a bulos or are you not a bulos? 
they could say, well, I mean, look at my birth certificate. You tell me, Papa. And you're like, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, names have a reference to something. And people have a reference to something. So when we read the name of somebody in a text, we have to understand how that connects with a character. And that's always, as Father Paul shows, is syntactical. How does it fit within the narrative? And how does using that character further the narrative point that the author is trying to make? That's that's what we need to figure out if we're reading the Bible as literature. The funny thing is, Rich, there are some interesting things about the backstory of Kirinios, and it's hard, honestly, to tell what Luke might be alluding to. It may take some time to piece this together, but I just want to share some facts that may lend themselves to what's happening in chapter two. May not, but interesting facts. He himself was a legate of Galatia, and he led a campaign against the region. Now, insofar as Luke and the diptych of Luke-Acts is dealing very much with the Pauline Gospel, and chapter 2, when compared with chapter 1, is shifting from the Jewish church to the Gentile church, the church in Judea versus the church among the Gentiles, that may be a relevant fact. It may be something to keep in mind, because we're also talking about the tutor of the grandson, of Augustus Caesar. The other fascinating thing, he was also the legate of Syria after Herod was thrown out in the first century. This again may tie to this theme. Remember that Luke is the gospel to the lovers of God in the Gentile church. So there may be some signals that Luke is sending. He may be playing on the backstory of this character. We don't know. We have to see how the story unfolds. But if you fall in the trap of the translators and interpreters that presented to us the King James English text, you're going to immediately jump to the conclusion that because this character in Roman history, according to Josephus, was commissioned to do a census in order to collect a tax, that when the Greek says census, oh, they must mean tax. And it's intuitive because our King James wants us to collect a tax anyways. You can't play that game of looking at it from the perspective of human history, human kingship. That's a huge mistake. Because you can bet that this character is not here because he was there in history. He is here because of Luke's purposeful anti-history. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. There it is. This is referring to his time in Syria. This is interesting, Richard. It's actually hitting me for the first time that the Lucan account is actually in direct conflict with historical accounts. So here you have in black and white what we've been saying, that Luke isn't interested in Roman history. He's telling his own story. In Matthew, we read that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great, and we know from historical accounts that Herod came before Quirinius, that they didn't reign at the same time. This is 
a significant difference. Now, this is where atheists they see the Bible's bunk, and this is where Christians get to work and they start making tables and graphs and trying to figure out where the problem is and things like that, as if there's some sort of criterion outside of Scripture that if they fulfill it, then we know that Scripture is correct or incorrect. We have to deal with the facts that are laid out by Luke and by Matthew. Why would it be that Matthew would have Jesus be born during Herod's time, and why would it be that Luke would have Jesus be born during Quirinius's time? There could be lots of answers to that. You know, only one would be, oh, one of them just didn't know history very well. That's one answer that's lame, so we're going to discount that one right off the bat. You could say that it is because of the time that is evoked, the governance that is evoked by these different people. We have Herod. Maybe it's the case that Herod is specifically Jewish and Quirinius is not. He's a Gentile. So there's a transition that happened from a Jewish governor of Judea to a Gentile governor of Judea. Well, that's interesting. And we know that Jesus, well, I can't say we know. We know that Matthew presents Jesus as right before that point and Luke right after that point. So we have this understanding of Jesus being born during this time. Now, again, I don't want to say when he was born, the actual date, whatever tradition. I don't want to talk about traditions and things. I want to talk about what the text is saying. Because Quirinius is brought up here and not Herod, Luke is making a point different than Matthew's. We have to say that, unless we go back to the silly point that one of them just didn't know history. We have Caesar Augustus, and we have the one who taught Caesar Augustus's grandson, which means Aquarius is no slouch. He knows his business. He knows governance, and he knows military, which are not so different in the Roman Empire. So we have this character who's brought in, who was the Gentile ruler of this area, and had demonstrated his prowess in governance and in military might, that he was chosen to teach the grandson, thereby the successor of the Roman Caesars. Teacher of Caesars. So we not only understand this prowess per se, but then as you were mentioning, Father, we have the region where he showed this prowess. We have to conclude then that Luke wanted those to be part of the story, the story about the birth of Jesus, that Jesus was born during a time when we already had the Caesar Augustus, we had a line of Gentile Roman rulers that were all lined up even to the third generation, who were going to be ready to rule this area. We have a focus on Rome and its dynasty. And the dynasty is established not simply by blood, but by military prowess in the good old-fashioned style of the Caesars. So not only do we have that he is the Gentile ruler of this region, but he's also governor of Syria. And Syria is always related to the wilderness. I mentioned last episode, we have John the Baptist who is in the deserts. John the Baptist is very familiar with the deserts. And now we have the governor of Syria, and thereby governor of at least one, perhaps multiple, deserts. It's interesting you mentioned that, 
again, thinking about Paul and this backstory of Kirinios, the fact is that Syria and Galatia are both featured in the story of Galatians. Obviously, Paul was in retreat in Syria before coming back to confront the pillars in Jerusalem. It's implied, at least according to my hearing of Galatians, that Paul worked on his other letters while he was in retreat in Syria before coming again to confront his opponents, to challenge them with the gospel once and for all. And there was a kind of a conquering of Jerusalem in the story. So there's, again, this military imagery. There's always this metaphor of military conquest because we're dealing with a Roman setting. The Romans were a military society, just like America is very much a military society. I listened recently to a homily by our colleague, Father Aaron Warwick, who noted how Americans tend to frame things in terms of violence and victory because we have a kind of militaristic outlook on life. And it's certainly true in the Gospels because that's how the Romans viewed the world. That's how it works in the prophets. Just go hear Ezekiel, hear it again. The way that God is presented symbolically in story with all of the interesting, colorful imagery, is to look like all the other scary, interesting, militaristic deities of the ancient world, because that's just how it works. So to the extent that Paul was coming back to conquer Jerusalem and Galatians, and Paul is in fact conquering the church of Galatia with the gospel, and in the broader story of the New Testament, he's moving from place to place, just like Jesus moves in the gospels. Go rehear Mark. I mean, whatever Quirinius did in conquering Galatia, it's going to be reconquered now by the gospel. Whatever he taught the children of Augustus, they're going to be retaught now by the gospel of Luke. Whatever was done in Syria is going to be undone now by the hand of Paul. It's not that this legate is the hero of the story, far from it. It's that he is being deconstructed, just like Caesar is being dethroned in Luke's anti-history of the Roman Empire. But you're never going to have a chance, even the slimmest chance of hearing this, if you approach this text by opening up a history book to figure out what really happened. Because all you're going to hear is that he was a tutor. And then you're going to be interested in whether he taught Latin or Greek. Now, that's interesting if you're a professor of history. But we're not talking about history. We're talking about Scripture. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.